Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you are blessed by today's sermon. So this morning we got a text. My we have a family group text that's about thirty of us. My sister sent out a text. It's birthdays, holidays, things like that. We got a birthday or a, a text this morning that was Happy Father's Day to all the fantastic fathers. And my first thought was, what about me? You left me out. Like, what about to the decent dads, not so bad father, like it'll do dads, like all of that stuff. Um, Happy Father's Day. So somehow I ended up with Father's and Mother's Day. And just to let you off the hook, dads, I'm not really even talking about dads today because uh, you're great. Thank you for being here. And thank you for what you do to love your kids and raise them as a part of it. You're incredibly important and um, we love you. So in the 15th century, Nicholas Copernicus, he was an astronomer, and he made a statement that revolutionized the way we think about everything. Every scientist and learned person up to that point believed that the earth was the center of the universe. The sun and everything in the heavens revolved around us. Copernicus said that if man is to know the truth, he must change his thinking despite what we have heard and believed. Our earth is not the center of the universe. I know, maybe surprising, but we're just one of many in the cosmos. We revolve around the sun. We're not in the middle. We moved around the sun. It's important to know this, but the thing that's crazy about this is not many people believed him initially, and they thought he was wrong. They thought he was crazy. It was a revolutionary thought, but it became this thought that became common knowledge. It was the Copernican Revolution. And it was this knowledge that transformed our knowledge of the way God, the order of the way God put things together, his design. So in the 20th century, a Swiss psychologist named Jean Piaget, who studied children, said each child must experience his or her own Copernican revolution. He said they must learn they are not the center of of their world. All things do not revolve around them. Surprising, that stands for us too, by the way. We are not the center of the universe, but it was very important. He said that every child must learn to understand that there are many others in, the, in their world around them and that everything, they are not the center of it. And if you've had children, you know that sometimes, that sometimes they think they're the center of the universe. Um, I, I'm not sure, but he said that every child must have a Copernican revolution in their own thinking that they begin to change their thought processes and who they are. Now, I want to say that this is important. As we grow older, these are still problems that seem to persist. In fact, in a society like we live in today, um, culture celebrates individualism. They celebrate our own desires and dreams. We celebrate successes. Our happiness and success is praised by everyone in the world that sees us. It's said that we live in the age of self. It's all about self, self self-realization, self-determination, self-esteem, self-help. There's a magazine called Self. What do everyone take? Selfies. Everything is about self. In fact, they say that generations that come up, they will always take pictures of themselves. I forgot the number. It's some crazy thousands and thousands of selfies will be taken by, by the generation that's coming up to show a picture of what's going on in the world. Marketing schemes that say it's, it's all about you. It's what you deserve. I'm just going to do me is a pretty common expression. So when you start thinking about that, that our world is pushing this individualism, um, 
It was the same tactic that Satan used in the garden when he deceived Adam and Eve and said that they'll surely not die, that they'll become like God. And sadly, this is the deception that persists and somehow in our world we have placed ourselves in the center of our universe. This individualism is the destroyer of the way God intended our lives to look and of relationships and leads to disunity and division. We don't have to look very far for that. But Paul had a deep understanding of division and infighting and what would it would do to the body of believers. The Apostle Matthew, this was not new, and the Apostle Matthew reports that towards the end of Jesus' ministry, that rivalries and competitive spirit developed even among his disciples. The apostles, when John's and James came to, with their mother, attempted to get Jesus to promise them privileged thrones in the kingdom, when the ten heard it, all the rest heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And this is um, so important for us to get, that harsh words and angry gestures were even shared among the apostles, and the tempers flared, so Jesus called them together. And listen to what he says in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It would seem that none of these guys would miss the point. However, as we all know, hearing the truth and making it a part of our lives is not always so simple. Even when we're devoted to Christ, even after this lesson, the apostles arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and even still there's tension going on. Peter and John had secured a room for Passover, but they didn't get anyone to wash feet. And Jesus' teaching only a few days earlier was lost on them. And apparently no one wanted to wash feet. No one would volunteer for a task that they couldn't even be forced to do or asked to do as Jews. It was all beneath so many of them. Do we ever take the same posture? As we look at John's gospel, we get an account of what happens next. The meal was in process, but the conversation was tense. The disciples became aware that the teacher had risen from supper and he was standing apart from them. And they watched him remove his outer garment. Next, he took a towel and wrapped it around his body and then poured water into a basin and began slowly to move around the circle, washing each disciple's feet wiping them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The incarnate God taking the position of a servant. Like Jesus, our posture should be that of a servant. To serve, not to be served. Philippians is a wonderful letter of comfort, but there's also some, it, with encouragement, reminding us of joy and peace and love that we have in Christ. But there's some serious tones as well, some serious lessons. And one of the issues that Paul addresses in the letter is unity in the church of Philippi. They're facing persecution from the outside, but it's the persecution from the inside that gives them pause. Conflicts in a church can jeopardize the church's witness to the world around them and their ability to withstand the world's assaults. Therefore, we must stand firm. Unity is, de is a defining characteristic of the church. And Paul speaks of this. Paul's thoughts in this letter turn from the way we need to withstand pressure from outside and our attitudes that should characterize us all as followers of Jesus. 
If someone were to ask you what the defining characteristics in one word of a church, I suspect a lot of people would say love, faith. Others may say community. But really, isn't it unity that comes first? Without the other things, all those things that lead in and funnel to unity. In fact, there was a position Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 20 and 21. It says, I do not ask for these things, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also must be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for unity, unity among his believers. At the end of the first chapter, Paul exhorted his church in Philippians, said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He knew that when we put a bunch of people together that there could be conflict and unity could go out the window because of certain things. And Paul goes into his discourse as he begins in chapter 2. Notice the words that he used to exhort the church to be unified. They were to stand firm, one spirit. They were to have one mind. They were to work together. And he continued this in the first verses of Philippians and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one and of one mind. Do we have any encouragement from in Jesus? Do we have any comfort from his love? Do we have any fellowship in the Holy Spirit and with the others through the Holy Spirit? Do we have affection and sympathy? If we are in Christ, of course we do. Of course we should. Although Paul used the word if, he was really building an argument. And assuming these things were true about the church in Philippi, Paul was not doubting that encouragement, fellowship of the Spirit, affection, and sympathy were true for this church. He was using a conditional statement to stir the Philippians so that they would reflect on whether these things were remaining true. These qualities were evident in the lives that they lived. The Philippian believers had to make sure they continued to progress in the critical area of loving one another. The church should have a common experience of grace. If we have these things Paul mentioned here, if these qualities are present among us within our church community, then we should be in fellowship with one another. If these things are true, then we should be united. We should be like-minded, believing the same things and having the same love for one another. The Philippians were encouraged to live out, live their lives out for Christ and in the spirit by living in the unity of one another. However, this is not a call at unity of all cost. To be one accord means to be united in spirit or to be harmonious. This does not occur at the cost of sacrificing truth. Unity occurs when followers of Jesus Christ have the same values, same love, and the same truth. Humility is a natural expression of unity. It's the one thing to say that we should be unified, and even so describe what unity is, but how do we do it? 
What do we need to do in order to be one? How do we bring this unity about? It may be helpful to consider what this unity is. This might look like contention or unhealthy conflict, unresolved conflict, and the inability to say, I was wrong, or I apologize, or I'm sorry, or always needing to be right. Or it may be a court with two opposing sides fighting it out over an issue, but in the middle of it, you have a rogue judge who's out for himself also and has it out for both of them. Disunity is a situation where every man is for himself. Paul tells us what Christian unity is. Now let's look at how Paul encouraged us to demonstrate it. Do nothing. Hear this. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. One way to not have unity pretty quickly is to pursue our own selfish desires. Paul mentioned selfish ambition, which is putting your desires and your pursuits above others, considering yourself more important than others. This kind of thinking promotes conflicts in the church, and I would say it creates conflict in the world around us. Have you ever known someone who is so focused on a position or a title or recognition or rewards or of something? Did their selfish ambition create unhealthy conflict for those around them? I would say probably so. We, are, we all typically have a temptation to operate this way in a spirit of selfish ambition. We naturally look to advance our own agenda. Such conceit is countered by considering others more, consider, more significant than yourself. Paul realized that. Everyone naturally looks out for his own interest. The key is to take that same level of concern that we have for ourselves and place it on others. Any concerns of others were to become the concerns of all in this church in Philippi and among us as we bring about unity. Therefore, in contrast to selfish ambition, Paul encouraged the church to be humble. Well, what exactly is humility? C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Being humble is thinking of yourself less than you naturally want to. Humility also involves a realistic appraisal of oneself and others as being formed in the image of God. We are to consider other people more significant than ourselves. Not easy to do. We are to consider other people to be more important than we are. When a community cares for one another more than we care for ourselves, disunity begins to fade away as we serve others the way that Jesus served us. In fact, to consider someone else more significant than yourself is an example, is the example of sacrificial love that Jesus gives us, which is how Jesus said the world would know that we are disciples in John 13, 34, and 35 by the ways that we love each other. Jesus is the perfect example of humility. As Paul builds this whole thing together, talks about what we need to have, and are we encouraged, and then he moves into how do we do it, and we follow the example of Jesus. Where do we get the attitude of humility? Having given us the basis for unity, the essence of unity, and the expression of unity, Paul then introduces the perfect model, Jesus himself. As Jesus humbly served, we ought to humbly serve others. With love and humility, we ought to consider others better than ourselves, more important than ourselves, 
He is the supreme example of humility and how we ought to treat one another. In verses 5 through 8 in chapter 2, it says, Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Do you hear that? Paul breaks down Jesus' example of service that goes all the way back to his pre-existence, his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father. Jesus is the ultimate example of genuine spiritual progress. This is not self-exalting struggle for supremacy, but a deep love for God and others shown in humble deeds of service. Paul included this in the letter to encourage greater humility among the people in Philippi. Paul gave us an example of humility that we should follow. If Jesus had this mindset, then shouldn't we? As children of the Most High King. Having the form of God is roughly equivalent to having equality with God. You get that. However, the form of God is directly contrasted with having the form of a servant. Even though Jesus was equal to God, the Father, he willingly submitted to the Father's will and became a servant. Christ did not use his equality with God to hold on to his divine privileges. He left those in his incarnation. This does not mean that Jesus ceased being God. The emptying consisted of Jesus becoming human and becoming a servant, not of his own give, not of his giving up any part of his true deity. Although he took the form of a servant, he did not give that up. This is like having all the power, all the authority, everything at your fingertips and choosing not to use it for the sake of others. Jesus willingly deprived himself of the rightfully exalted status. He exchanges royal robes for the garments of sin worn by all of us. Instead, Jesus had the mindset of a servant. He did not come to please himself, but to serve others, to be obedient to his father. In humility, he counted the interests of others more significant than his own. Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to the will of the father. Though he was God and equal to the father, he died for those that he loved. This is the model for us. What is sacrifice? What is true humility? We should be humble considering others more significant than ourselves, submitting to the will of the Father in all things that we do, in the ways that we live our lives. Jesus' humility and self-sacrifice is the reason why he was exalted, highly exalted. Look at the final verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So to the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus left the glories of heaven and came down to earth as a lowly servant. However, he left the earth victorious and exalted. Jesus' humiliation became the grounds for exaltation. By humbling himself on the cross... Jesus demonstrated that he truly shared the divine nature of God. Jesus' exaltation includes his lordship, 
in which every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Thus, we should do the same. Being a disciple of Christ means we are to love one another just as Jesus loves us. It means we serve one another just as Jesus served us. Being a disciple means that we humble ourselves and consider others more important than we consider ourselves. To do this, we need only to follow the example that Jesus gave us. He humbled himself as a servant, out of love, and sacrificed all and died for us. By following the example of Christ, the problems of disunity begin to melt and fade away. So let's work together to be disciples Jesus has called us to be, to sacrifice for one another, to move ourselves out of the center of the universe. Maybe we should have our own Copernican revolution, or maybe it's just a Christ-like revolution that we live with the example of humility that God has given us. That is the mind of Christ, that we are one body, and that is good news. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.